Amen. If you have a Bible, please open with me to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi will be in chapter 2 this morning, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, as we continue a, a fairly rapid progression through this prophecy of the Lord to His people. Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16, and we're looking at this under the title of The Fickle People of God. The Fickle People of God. You could substitute the word treacherous. That's what the text says, the treacherous people of God. Thus far, we have seen the faithful love of God, the fearful worship of God, and the fruitful minister of God. And so today, we see now the fickle people of God. This prophecy is, and I think I've said this every week, and I might for the whole um, time that we're in here, this prophecy is just so interesting, and it's so sobering because the Lord is continually dealing with His people for their sin. And not only is He dealing with the actions of their sin, but He deals with the heart. The Lord gets to the heart of the matter at each and every turn, and that is so sobering as we examine ourselves in light of Holy Scripture. So as we turn to the text, we want to see the, the fickleness, the treachery, the deceit of God's people, because that's what the Lord deals with, how they are deceitful in their relationships. That's how deceitfulness often works itself out, is in human relationships. So let's look at our text, let's read it, and then we need to ask the Lord's help and His blessing on our time as we study His Word. I'll ask that you please stand with me as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. This is holy inerrant, inspired scripture. This is the true word of the one true God. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakens and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, And with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit." And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not 
deal treacherously. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and may he write it upon our hearts. Please be seated. Now let's join together and bow our heads and go before the throne of grace of the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. Our Father, you are in the heavens and you do as you please. You're self-sustaining. You're sovereign. You're the God over all, in all, through all, and above all. You're the creator and sustainer of all things. There are none to whom you may be compared. You're the great triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The great I am who always was, who is, and who will ever be. Lord, great is your name. And you are greatly to be praised. Lord, you have given us a book. You have given us a book with instructions for all things that pertain to spiritual life and godliness. That book is the Holy Bible. Would you write your word, Lord, upon our hearts? Would you humble us as we look to your truth? Would you reveal to us our sin? Would you reveal to us the areas where we are hard-hearted and cold-hearted? Would you reveal to us areas, Lord, where we can just do better, where we can love the world less and love you more? Lord, would you show us Christ? We know that Christ is the great focal point of all of Scripture, for He is the great focal point of all human history. So would you show us more of Christ, Lord, in the forgiveness that He has earned for us, in His glorious example, in His glorious state as our great high priest and our advocate before the Father. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you take your word and plant it within our hearts? Would you help us to put away anything that might distract or take away from this time where we look at your word? Lord, we understand that the, the transmission of the truth from, from one human to another is but a miracle that is accomplished through the Spirit. So we pray, Lord, that the words that that we hear today would be words that go out with the power of the Spirit. Pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to your truth. Pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are ready and eager to receive and apply the truth of your word. Lord, the sum of your word is truth. All of your commandments are righteous and faithful and true. Would you write your word upon our hearts? 
Would you strengthen us to live lives that honor and glorify the Savior who gave his life for us? Lord, we pray that you and you alone would be magnified and glorified through the proclamation of your word today. May we walk by the Spirit so that we do not gratify the desires of the flesh. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look to this text, um, you will realize, I think, that it's rather broad, and it comes with a very unique set of challenges, specifically as we get to the interpretation of verse 15. But when we consider a text like this, as you, I think, already know, we must consider where and how do we see Christ. For when we look at the Old Testament especially, we have to be markedly careful to look for and to see how this points to Christ. How is this fulfilled in Christ? How does this show us our need for Christ? And I think it can become very clear as you think about this text that that one of the ways that we see Christ here is that he is the chief example of the things that the Lord is telling his people to avoid. He speaks of of this brotherhood of his people who are dealing falsely and deceitfully with one another. Christ is the foremost example of how to be a Christ-like brother. Christ is also the example of the holy and perfect and righteous bridegroom. Christ showed how to love a wife, and the Lord hits on this idea of the covenant of marriage throughout the text. So as we work through this, Christ is kind of the focal point, exactly as the Lord would intend. We look to and we see Christ. And so then we can make a kind of primary exhortation from the text that focuses around Christ. That is that we must follow the example of Christ And put away all forms of treacherous, deceitful, and unfaithful fleshliness. Now, Christ never had to put those things away because Jesus Christ in the flesh was perfect. He was holy and righteous and without sin. But we are not. And so we follow his example. And the way that we follow his example is by putting those things off. Putting those things away. But this was the sin of the people of Israel. They they were following the passions and the desires of their flesh, and they were living deceitfully and dealing treacherously with one another. Such should never be true of God's people. Such should never mark the Lord's people that we be known by deceit. The flesh operates with a singular purpose, its own purpose its own desire. The flesh desires to to make much of self, and we must fight against that. We must look to our example, Christ, put off the flesh, and put on Christ. Put off the flesh, put on Christ, daily dying to ourselves. This is the Lord's instruction to His people. Walk by the Spirit so that you do not gratify these desires of the flesh. 
So, so that's kind of the, the, overall, the overall goal of this is to see Christ and to see how we put off sin to be more like Christ. And w- with a text like this, you could probably come up with multiple ways to, to outline it, to, to move through it, but just a, a few ideas to kind of hang our minds on as we, as we work through this. We see the relational faithlessness of God's people in the first few verses. We see their religious falsehood in verses 13 and 14. And then the Lord calls them to act. And so we want to think about the idea of righteous following, righteously following and keeping the Lord's commands. So let's begin. Relational faithlessness, verses 10 through 12, begins, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? We'll stop there and look at what Malachi has to say, what the Lord has to say through Malachi. He begins with kind of leveling the playing field by speaking of the deceit of how they interact with one another. And he says, do we not all have one father? Are we not created by one creator. We're all created in the image of God. We all share together in the promises of God through the covenant of our fathers. So there's some question, is Malachi pointing to God as father here, or is he maybe pointing to Abraham as the father of the Jews? I think with the, the, with the talk of the covenant, I think he's probably referring to Abraham. For that was, that was kind of a practice of the Jews. They always pointed back to that heritage We are one people. We are together. We are descendants of Abraham. And so there's a lot to understand from that. It's like Malachi saying, we're descended from one person. We share in the same covenant. We're under the same law. We're under the same requirements of God. And we share the same blessings of God. And what should come from that is unity, brotherhood, love. But instead, they're dealing deceitfully slanderously. They're dealing with crafty schemes against one another. And again, these things ought not be of God's people. We should be those who are honest and genuine and true and loving. So these people, they live under the same covenantal promises, the same laws, but then it's as though the Lord takes the bar even higher And he says, do we not also have one creator? Are we not all created in the image of God? Do we not share the same ultimate head, ultimate giver of life, the Lord God himself? The Lord is very clear in his word that he shows no partiality. For that's part of what the people surely were doing was being partial to one another, showing favoritism to one another. The Lord plays no favorites. As we considered earlier this morning, there are those who are in Christ, and there are those who are in their sin. There are those who are of Christ, and those who are children of their father, the devil. There are those who have spiritual life and the hope of salvation bought with the blood of Christ at Calvary's cross, and there are those who are condemned because they remain in their sin. That's it, those who are in Christ and those who are in God, and yet we all share one 
creator. We all bear the image and the mark of the Lord. And so Malachi levels the playing field there, and then he goes on to say, Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? So, so what does treachery look like in action? We can cross-reference back to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9, and, and we could really read the, the first six verses, but shorten it down to verse 4 through um, 6. Jeremiah 9, verse 4 through 6. What does treachery look like in action? It says, Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor, and do not trust any brother, because every brother deals craftily, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. So what word keeps coming up there? Deceit, crafting, slander, lies, dishonesty. That is what marks the treacherous person. That, when, when Malachi speaks of dealing treacherously with one another, surely that's what the Lord has in mind, is those who deal falsely with one another, those who mistreat one another. We can even bring it down a little bit more. And so, just one question, when, when you read through this, why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? How often when you mistreat a fellow human, how often do you consider the fact that you are actually profaning and breaking the covenant of God? I'm turning this off. It's humming. I'm, it's, I don't know what it's doing. So, But how often do you consider when you sin against a fellow man, even in something simple, that you have profaned God's covenant? It's a serious thing to pollute and to defile that which the Lord has covenanted with, with his people. The Lord's covenant with his people, Exodus 19, verse 5, he told his people, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then, so if you obey, then you shall be my own possession among all peoples. That's Exodus 19. You know what the Lord then does in Exodus chapter 20. He gives the Ten Commandments. How do we break up the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the law, that we love God and that we love others? So to deal treacherously with another is that idea of breaking the second table of the laws. It's to, it's to break God's covenant, to pollute and to defile yourself and to pollute and to defile God's promise to his people. Now, maybe you say, but we live under the new covenant. Praise the Lord, we do. We're under the covenant of grace, but we remember the new covenant is not a nullifying of the old. It's a fulfillment of it. Christ fulfilled the old and brought about the new. Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? In all of his wisdom, what does he point back to? He points back to the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
the two tables of the law. So it's, it's not out with the old and in with the new. It's fulfill the old when we bring about the new. And so when we think about the new covenant, it's not just that, that breaking God's law is a breaking of the old covenant. But it's a breaking, and Hebrews 10 would tell us, a profaning of the blood of the new covenant. It's trampling underfoot the Son of God who gave His life for you when you deal treacherously with another person. There probably can be a special emphasis on if you deal treacherously with another believer because the Lord, again, is talking to His people, to Israel, those who are His chosen and elect. So you have the relational unfaithfulness, where, where they deal craftily with one another. But that's not the only faithlessness that Israel showed. Look, look at verse 11. Keep moving through the text. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god." Now, we must remember the, the Old Testament context here to understand the treacherous abomination. The Lord has set apart a people for Himself, right? He has called through Abraham a people to be His, pulled out from the world. His people fell into captivity, to slavery in Egypt. And when the Lord was about to deliver them from that bondage, in Exodus 12, verse 43, the night of the Passover the text says that the Lord, Exodus 12, 43, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. The Lord was separating out his people. He was pulling them out. He was not allowing the Egyptians, the, those who were pagans, to participate in his promises we could go on to read in the beginning of Ezra chapter 9 that the Lord would go on to command His people not to take part in marriage with pagan nations. They were not to marry foreigners. He, he had this people kind of courted off, separated, called out from the world for Himself. So don't be married to pagan nations. Don't even let them come and partake of the Passover. Now, one I think, question that we could ask of this, and then this kind of gets us to some implication here, is, is does that then, the Lord says, don't go be married to foreigners or to pagan nations. So does the Lord, does He, does he forbid the mixing of ethnicities through interracial marriage? Because that's effectively what that was, correct? He, he said, do not go be married to those foreigners. But we have to understand, the answer to that is no. The Lord does not forbid that. The Lord had a specific purpose in what He was doing. He was guarding the moral and religious purity of His people. He was saying, be separated from the world. Don't join with them because you will go and turn and wor worship their false gods. Judges 3, 5, and 6 tells us as much. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives, and they gave their own daughters to their sons, and they served their 
gods. The Lord separated his people off for a reason so that they would be a holy people separated from the worship of a false god. That was the whole battle and war with Israel really in that day is that they kept falling into idolatry. They kept falling into the worship of false gods. And and so the Lord sets them apart to guard their moral purity. And the Lord requires the same of us today that we be in the world, but we're not of it. We're not given to fleshly desires. We're not given to worldly philosophies. We are always on guard because, as Paul told the Corinthians, that we must not be deceived because bad company corrupts good morals. So when the Lord separates out a people for himself, he does it for a purpose. Because as we saw last week, the Lord desires that his word be guarded and kept. The lips of the priest should preserve knowledge. And when you give yourself over to the worship of a false god, you do not preserve the knowledge of the Holy One. So the Lord has his people separated off so that they can be a holy people. But what do they do? How do they respond? They act in treacherous, and they act treacherously. They act in deceit. They act in falsehood. They give themselves to the marriage of the pagans. It says that they have profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, by marrying the daughters of a foreign God. To profane the sanctuary of the Lord speaks of polluting or defiling that which is holy, that which is even beloved of the Lord. I think there's really even a a way in which you can read this as the sanctuary kind of being indicative of the people of God. They have profaned themselves as God's people by being joined to a foreign God. Calvin writes here that they had polluted holiness even when they had been separated from the world, for they had disregarded so great an honor by which they might have been preeminent had they continued in their integrity. The Lord had separated his people off and they completely disregarded it because they wanted to follow the passionate desires of their flesh. They held this position uh, of preeminence, this this position as the elect people of God, and yet they threw it all away because they wanted to chase after the desires of their flesh. In what way do Christians today defile themselves, defile that which is holy, and pollute what the Lord has set apart for himself? How do we defile ourselves as the people of God? How do we defile the church, the bride of Christ? I think kind of the, uh, the one overarching generic answer is that we do so by polluting the Lord's church with worldly things and worldly ideas. That's why it's so important that we are accountable to one another. That's why it's so important that we pursue individual personal holiness. It's because in doing that, we don't pollute that which the Lord has set apart to be holy. Think about the church as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5 paints that picture 
the picture of Christ washing his bride, it says that he did so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and blameless. That's what the Lord has done to us as his people. He has washed us. He has cleansed us. He has set us apart from the world and called us to forsake sin so that Christ might on that last day present the church, his bride, to himself in all of her glory, in all of her splendor, with no spot, no stain, no wrinkle. And dear friend, take heart to know that Christ is going to do that because Christ washes us with his blood. We are cleansed. We are purified. We are made perfect and counted righteous in and through Christ and praise the Lord for that. But that doesn't negate our need to pursue those things ourselves each and every day. The Lord calls us to be holy. The Lord makes us holy so that we can walk in the holiness to which he calls us. Don't pollute that which the Lord has cleansed. What's the answer of the people to this? What's the answer of the Lord to this? Verse 12, he says, As for the man who does this, so there are those who answer this and still go on with their false, profaned worship. Malachi says, As for one who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers, everyone who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. Effectively, just to kind of to, to clarify that, because the wording is maybe a little confusing, effectively, Malachi is saying that everyone who arises and goes to make a sacrifice to the Lord while living in unrepentant sin, they must be cut off. The doors must be shut. It's one of the reasons that we do guard the Lord's table a little bit because that is one way that we remember and proclaim Christ and we guard that which the Lord has made holy. That's why we don't offer church membership to those who do not have a credible profession of faith. It's why we don't offer church membership to those who live in unrepentant sin because this is the bride of Christ and we are called to be holy. We are called to be set apart. We are called to cut off those who would awake and give an answer, those who would come and give profane worship to the King of kings, the one who is holy, holy, holy. We cut off any who would come and profane that cry of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then we join together as the purified bride of Christ, and we sing just that holy, holy holy, and the Lord is glorified in that. We must guard against what, what verse 12 shows is really a defiant attitude toward God when he calls out sin. It's really what that, that really speaks to is those who, who the Lord has revealed their sin, and yet they just continue on. They don't check up. They, they awake and arise and they go and they give their answer. They go back to the house of the Lord to worship. Dear friends, may that never be true of us. 
If you awaken on the Lord's day with, with sin in your heart, sin in your life, fall on your knees and your face before the Lord and repent and come ready and eager and purified and acceptable to the Lord to come and worship. Now let's also understand here that every form of worship that is not in line with Scripture is this false type of worship to a false God that the Lord rejects. It's one notion that we have to understand as a church is that we worship in the ways that the Lord prescribes. We do the things He tells us. It's not just that we don't do what He tells us not to do. When we come to worship the Lord, we do only that which He tells us to do. Because everything else is an idea and a plan of man, and the Lord rejects that worship. He sees it as strange fire. And in the Old Testament, we know that He would come and consume those who brought that strange fire before Him to worship. We must fight and work hard to worship in reverent purity and holiness as the Lord requires. It's ultimately what Israel was not doing. That's ultimately the point that they missed. They defiled themselves, and therefore they profaned the worship of God. And moving to verses 13 and 14, we can also see what I'm terming religious falsehood. Religious falsehood. It says, this is another thing that you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and groaning, and because he no longer regards the offering. He no longer accepts it with favor from your hand. And you say, but for what reason? So, so the people are, are wailing and crying and groaning and say, Lord, why don't you accept our offering? It says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So, this whole section falls under this idea of falsehood in worship. The people come before the Lord with tears, with, with outward show of emotion, outward show of desire for the Lord to receive their worship. But the Lord effectively, as Christ would, would say in the New Testament, says, depart from me. Because I never knew you, and you're a worker of lawlessness. You're a worker of iniquity. I don't accept your offering, though you seek to bring an offering to me even with tears. I don't accept it because it's profane. You have defiled yourself. And so all you're showing is a falsehood and a deceitfulness in your attempt to come worship the God of all creation. This is hypocrisy. It is hard-heartedness, it's arrogance, it's pride, it's false worship, it's deceit, and the list goes on and on and on. And really, it's hard to fathom. You, you, you kind of, you know, we're, we're on the outside of this situation. It's hard to fathom being these people, living in such unrepentant sin living so against the commands and prescriptions of the Lord and then still having this religious falsehood where you think the Lord is going to accept your worship. It's hard to fathom that. 
But let's stop right there. And remember, that's exactly what we do on a day-to-day basis when we sin and don't immediately hit our knees and repent. It's a religious falsehood. Our lives are given to the Lord in worship. It's not just Sunday morning. It's not just Sunday night or Wednesday night. It's every moment of every day. You are to give yourself as an offering of worship to the Lord. And so when you transgress his law, when you sin and you can't immediately repent, and and the Lord knows we so often fail in that, but when you don't immediately repent, you are performing this exact religious falsehood because you're giving your life as an act of worship when you have unrepentant sin in your heart and in your life. And please know that is not stated to make light of sin, to give us this idea that, oh, we will always sin. Yes, we will always sin. And every time we sin, it's an offense to a holy God. So all that should humble us, not free us in our sin to know that we do that so often. It should humble us, and it should break us. We do this while being Christians, while being followers of Christ. We fall into temptation. We fall into sin, and dear friends, some believers even run headlong into sin at times. And that should be a fearful thing when you consider how the Lord responds to profane worship. When you put, put all those ideas together, that your life is an act of worship at all times, and there are those who, who are in Christ who just run into sin because the desire of the flesh is too strong, They do not walk in the Spirit, and then all of those acts of worship are profane. They are defiled. They are rejected by the Lord. These things ought not be. We must battle the flesh. We must wage war against sin and the flesh as though our lives and our eternities are at stake. And we must do that because our lives and our eternities are at stake. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men and the holiness and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Battle sin like your eternity depends on it because it does. Hebrews 12 is such a great tie-in because the author then goes on to write of Esau. What did Esau do? The text tells us that he sold his own birthright for a single meal. And then you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected because he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Though he sought it with tears. Where have we seen tears? Verse 13 of Malachi chapter 2. People sought the Lord's acceptance with tears, but they did so without repentance. Esau found no place for repentance. He found no repentance in his heart because all he had was worldly sorrow, and the Lord rejected him. The Lord rejected him, and the Lord is rejecting these people who come before him with religious falsehood. Now, what exactly was um, part of the religious falsehood that was going on here? Because we get some specifics in the text. Verse 14, they, they say, what, for what reason? 
Why do you reject us? And the Lord says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, the one against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now, can we just pause there and understand the beauty of the Lord's creation of the covenant of marriage? The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. He has, the Lord has been the one who has joined together two and made them one. She is your companion. She is your wife by covenant, by promise, by the devoted promise to always love her and forsake all others and forsake all else, to love her chiefly only under your love for the Lord. The Lord has such a high view of marriage. We fall so short, I think, often in our view of marriage. We would like to honor marriage as the Lord does, but so often we miss it. And these people, the Jews of this day, we, we know from Scripture completely butchered the idea of marriage. In Matthew chapter 5, where the Lord is recounting some of Israel's laws that they had effectively made up, Verses 31 and 32, Jesus says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So you, you, if you want to divorce your wife, give her a certificate and send her on her way. Now, that's what Israel said was acceptable. But Jesus says, But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's the point? The, the leaders of Israel and the people and following their example, had really they'd made an irreverent mockery of the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage, the Lord tells us from Ephesians 5, is a picture of the Lord's covenant faithfulness to us in and through Christ. The Jews were, were these legalistic rule followers whereby if they could create a rule and keep that rule, then they considered themselves to be in good, right standing before the Lord. So they took this idea of divorce and, and kind of wrote in, maybe in, in some subtext or, or down at the bottom of the page, they wrote in, hey, this is what you have to do and divorce is acceptable. And then they did it constantly. They were given to divorce and then what they were ultimately given to in that is adultery. They were breaking the Lord's command. They were destroying his intent for marriage. The Lord's intent for marriage is one man and one woman for life. That's why in our vows we often say, till death do us part. Because we are promising to come together as one until parted by death. Now, just as an aside, and we're not going to chase this trail, but I want to make mention of it just for the sake of making mention and a little bit of clarity. Uh, we do understand that, sadly, some marriages do end in divorce. Um, from Matthew 5 and 1 Corinthians 7, uh, it, it seems to be clear that there are cases where divorce is an acceptable solution, a, a, a non-sinful solution. But what we have to see is that the Lord holds marriage in highest regard. He rejected these people because of how they profaned the covenant of marriage. 
They committed adultery. They were being immoral. They were not showing the love of Christ. Malachi makes so clear that the Lord sees these sins because he says, The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously. The union of marriage is one that God creates, it's one that God sustains, and it's one that God sees when it's broken. And that is a vile act of sin, except for in a very narrow set of circumstances that are clearly described and defined in Scripture. It's vile and profane and impure worship when someone who has defiled the marriage covenant comes before the Lord in worship without coming with a repentant and humbled heart. I'll just add on to that, that this type of deceit can come in many forms. So the Lord mentions the breaking of the covenant of marriage, but you think back to the earlier portion of this passage, the breaking of the covenant of God's law falls under the same idea. So we must examine our hearts and our lives and see to it that we don't give ourselves to breaking and polluting and profaning the Lord's covenant. So there's a required response to this, and this is where things are going to get a little bit tricky. And so I want you to hang with me as we look at the idea of righteous following. Righteous following in verse 15 and 16. I want to read that, and then we'll talk a little bit about verse 15 and, and how we might interpret this. But, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Now, I found out um, in, in some discussions with some friends who know a lot more about Hebrew than I do that verse 15 is effectively the most challenging verse in the Old Testament to interpret. There are trouble when they interpret it into the Greek. There's trouble interpreting it from Hebrew to English. It's just, it's difficult. It's a difficult passage to understand. The ESV, I think, is maybe, maybe a little clearer as to the context here the SV reads here, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So one of the people I spoke to about this said that some of the translators interpret this as a reference to a real life event. And that makes a lot of sense as you read through it. And the event they think it points back to is Hosea and his wife of harlotry, Gomer. And so there, there the Lord was seeking a godly offspring. He was seeking to turn his people back from their sin. And he was setting forth Hosea as an example of the adulterous bride that Israel was. And then he called his people to repent. The Lord brought that union together, and then the Lord caused and called for that union to stay together.
because he was seeking to create a godly offspring. So I, I think that makes a lot of sense in, in this context that, that we're looking at, at the idea of the Lord joining a marriage together and the Lord using a marriage to create a godly offspring. And so we can draw direct implication from that. A godly marriage, a godly union of man and wife, when the Lord blesses that home with children, you are responsible for investing the Word of God into those children to, to do the work the Lord would call you in creating a godly offspring. That's one of the Lord's primary purposes in marriage, is to continue and to extend His people, to use godly parents to invest the Word in those children, and then the Lord uses that to save those children and to raise up a new generation of faithful followers of Christ. And so this is where the idea of righteous following comes in. The Lord says, take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. The Lord has given warning. He has given instruction. Now he says, take heed. Beware. Hear what I say and go and do it. James chapter 1 says, but each one is tempted. And when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. We must resist temptation. Take heed in your spirit. Resist temptation because temptation leads to lust. Lust leads to sin. Sin leads to death. Take heed and resist temptation. Paul constantly told Timothy, his son in the faith, Pay close attention to yourself. Pay close attention to your life and to your teaching. Persevere, and then you ensure both your salvation and that of your hearers. Pay attention to your life. Pay attention to your doctrine. Pay attention to your godliness. Pay attention to those things which tempt you because temptation leads to lust and lust leads to sin. Pay attention. Know how Satan will attack. Peter tells us that we must have our minds prepared for action, and we must keep sober in spirit while fixing our hope on Christ, and that, that's the ultimate tool that we have, fixing our hope upon Christ. When temptation comes, your eyes lift above that temptation, and they look to the future hope and glory of Christ. If you want to fight sin by trying to replace the temptation to sin with some otherworldly desire, guess what? You're just going to go chase after another sin. Be sober in spirit. Have your mind prepared for action. When temptation comes, fix your hope upon Christ. Think and dwell upon that which is good and pure and honorable and true and right. Think not about the evils of the world, but look to your glorious Savior. So we must take heed. We must beware and we must be constantly at war with the flesh. Verse 16, the Lord says, I hate divorce 
and, I hate divorce, and him who covers his garment with wrong. I think that's the broadening out to, to move just from this idea of divorce into the whole of the Christian life. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. That's the idea of covering wrong, covering your garment with wrong. You hide and conceal your sin. The Lord does not turn a blind eye to iniquity. He does not turn a blind eye to those who wrongly cover sin. We know that love covers a multitude of sins, but that is so unrelated to what we're talking about here. It's not the same thing. We cover sin when someone is repentant. We don't cover and conceal our own iniquity. The Lord hates the one who covers their own iniquity. The righteous rather must expose sin. We must expose falsehood. We expose our own sin and our own falsehood, but we also expose the sin and the falsehood of others. Now, there's proper ways to do that, especially private confrontation before you go declare something publicly, but the righteous bring sin to light. The righteous expose that which the Lord hates. So we can conclude with the final words there of verse 16. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Take heed that you deal in truth that you walk in righteousness, that you walk according to faithful and devoted love both to the Lord and to your fellow man. Look to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was both the example and the solution, the chief example of brotherhood and of a friend and of a faithful bridegroom, but he also paid the cost for all of those failings. So you look to him. You put away all deceit. You must live in the light, and you allow the truth to expose deeds of unrighteousness. Allow the truth to expose deeds of unrighteousness. The Lord hates every kind of falsehood. Put off sin. Put off the flesh, and put on Christ. We'll close if you want to turn back to read along with John chapter 3. And it's kind of a fitting summary to this idea. John chapter 3, we can start at verse 18 and read through verse 21. John 3, verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who hates the light, or everyone who does evil, hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as, have been, as having been wrought 
in God. Do you love darkness or do you love light? Do you love evil or do you love righteousness? God sees the heart and He will not deal lightly with concealed, deceitful sin. Paul says in Ephesians 5, walk as children of the light. Dear friends, we must walk as children of the light. We practice truth in the light, and we do so by walking in the Spirit. So may we do that. May we walk in the Spirit. May we expose evil with patience and love, and may we be those who hold to and proclaim the truth and live in light of the truth as we pursue righteousness to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we come and we ask